Good mornings, I'm Chris Oaks, and coming up today, the Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court is getting behind an effort to combat what could be called legal deserts, bringing attorneys to those who need them in rural and underserved areas. Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy will join us to talk more about it. Also this morning, have you ever had a fight with your significant other over finances? For Valentine's Day, a look at how modern-day couples approach love and money. And if you're looking for the ultimate gift for that special someone, how about a couple's getaway? And what could be more romantic than a cruise to your dream destination? This is the Good Mornings Podcast Edition for Wednesday, February 14th, 2024. It is shaping up to be a record year for Valentine's Day, spending-wise, according to the National Retail Federation. They estimate the consumers plan to spend a total of, I hope you're sitting down for this, $25.8 billion being spent this Valentine's Day. That is the third highest in the survey's history. Uh, Let's see here. An average of $185 each on average, it says here, uh, which is nearly $8 more than the average Valentine's Day spending over the past five years. So $8 uh, higher than the five-year average uh, this year. So use that as your spending guide, guys, if you are not spending a minimum of $8 more than what you spend in your average Valentine's Day over the past five years then you're uh, you're going el cheapo. So, I just I'm here to help if you want to. By the way, if you just aren't feeling it for Valentine's Day, you are not alone. Almost a third of those who are not planning a traditional celebration still plan to mark the occasion. Uh again, National Retail Federation uh statistics say uh a lot of darker anti-Valentine's Day gifts will be uh, purchased and uh, get-togethers with single friends uh, who are similarly uncoupled. And I would imagine the uh, retailers, restaurants, and so so on, they don't really care one way or the other. They don't care whether you're spending it uh, on yourself, on a special someone, if you are alone, if you are coupled, whatever. They don't care as long as you're spending. That's... That's really what they are uh, hoping for here. Um, This is kind of interesting in a related uh, romance and dating uh, theme here uh, this morning. Because Valentine's Day is the day when we think about coupling up. If you're not already with someone special, maybe you're searching for someone special. Maybe you are turning to dating apps, as many people do uh, year-round, but especially right around Valentine's Day. And an interesting new study shows that the order in which you see profiles on those dating apps can impact whether or not you swipe right or swipe left. And for those who are not really familiar, swiping right on a profile means that you are interested. Swiping left means you are not interested. So the long and short of it is this. We tend to rank how attractive and a face is based on our opinion of the previous face. For example, if you come across a profile that you consider attractive 
and the next profile has similar features, you are more likely to like that next profile as well. And the converse is also true. If you are are given a profile that you don't find attractive, you are more likely to not find the next profile attractive either. Um, And this bias can apply to other traits like intelligence and trustworthiness. And not just online either. If you encounter someone who is uh, intelligent or trustworthy or both, the next person you meet, you are likely to think the same thing about, even if there is no um, verifiable proof of that. It's just kind of the the uh, bias that we have in our brain. The effect is known as the sequential effect, and also, they say, impacts how teachers grade essays and how judges uh, grade Olympic performances even. So, they like what they see with one competitor, they're most likely to have that sequential effect onto the next competitor. So, kind of interesting there. uh, Let's see. What else is going on around the world? Among the uh, first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day. We mentioned yesterday that the Super Bowl on Sunday was the most watched television broadcast ever of all time. Not just biggest sports broadcast, biggest broadcast, period, end of sentence. And fresh off of their huge success with the Super Bowl, CBS Paramount parent company, Paramount Global, is set to lay off 800 employees. (laughs) Fresh off a huge Super Bowl, they're going to lay off 800 employees, going to get a pink slip, about 3% of their workforce. Um, The job cuts are scheduled for this week. Is it this week or next? The people are going to get the pink slips. I'm not sure. But the uh, CEO of Paramount uh, says the strategy is to boost earnings growth uh, despite the record-setting Super Bowl. uh, Super Bowl notwithstanding, Paramount's shares fell by 4% on Tuesday, yesterday, contributing to a 13% decline since the beginning of the year. So they're having issues uh, financially and... um, so, hey, it's a great Super Bowl. You're being laid off. You're being fired. That's I'm sorry. Uh, speaking of which, and I don't know if you realize this, you caught this, you uh, were aware of this. Heading into Super Bowl 58, Buffalo Wild Wings promised that if the game went into overtime, everyone gets free wings. And guess what? The game went into overtime. Uh, that means that come Monday... February 26th. Is that this Monday or is that next Monday? Anyway, Monday, February 26th, between 2 to 5 p.m., all dine-in and in-person takeout orders will be gifted one free order of wings per customer. So just want to let you know uh, if you are interested in taking advantage of that or... Uh, you may be interested in avoiding Buffalo Wild Wings because you know it's going to be busy that day. That's if you want to avoid the crowds. That is not going to be the place to eat on uh, Monday, February 26th. But uh, you get free wings if you are willing to fight the crowds. And speaking of football, this is big news. The college football playoff will remain on ESPN for the foreseeable future. 
The uh, CFP has agreed to a new rights deal with the worldwide leader in sports. The network will exclusively broadcast the new 12-team tournament until at least 2031. The new deal kicks in before the 2026 season and is worth $7.8 billion over six years. So a little more than a billion dollars a year uh, that ESPN has paid for the rights, which they have held for the college football playoff semifinals and finals finals since the playoffs started back in 2014. So it's going to stay. There was some uh, discussion that maybe uh, other entities would outbid ESPN for the rights to the college football playoff, most notably Fox Sports. But uh, the uh, college football playoffs will remain on ESPN. Speaking of college bowl games, you remember college bowl season. What was the most talked about bowl? I mean, outside of the uh, college football playoffs, just the rest of the bowl games, what was the the one bowl game that was most talked about went viral um, that everybody was buzzing about? The Pop-Tarts Bowl. Remember the Pop-Tarts Bowl with the edible mascot? The winning team got to eat the giant Pop-Tart? <laughs> Well, some sad news this morning. The man credited as the inventor of the Pop-Tart has passed away. That's right. William Post uh, passed away at the age of 96 this past weekend. He was a plant manager for Keebler back in the 1960s and was approached by Kellogg's executives asked to create a breakfast food for the toaster. Uh, early versions of the item were developed by Bill Post and a team of his co-workers with the final product becoming what we know today as the Pop-Tart. And it uh, goes on to say here in the story that Bill Post continued to work for the company, retiring as a senior vice president before continuing as a consultant. He died on Saturday at the age of 96. So I have a Pop-Tart today in memoriam. And finally this morning, among the first things you need to know this morning, the most interesting and buzzworthy stories of the day, if you and your special someone for Valentine's Day uh, will be uh, doing, a, doing a movie night, maybe a romantic movie night at home, you know, light a few candles, put on a little mood lighting, and uh, fire up the home theater, uh, the most favorite, America's favorite romantic comedies... According to an analysis of data from the Internet Movie Database, they looked at the favorite rom-coms state by state. And the first, uh, first place most popular romantic comedy, according to the Internet, Internet Movie Database, 10 Things I Hate About You and When Harry Met Sally are in a tie for first place. Favorite romantic comedies of all time. Ten Things I Hate About You and When Harry Met Sally. The rest of the list of top rom-coms in this state-by-state list, these are all of the films that were most popular in at least one state. They include Sleepless in Seattle, How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days, Bridget Jones' Diary, Notting Hill, The Proposal, Pretty Woman, Crazy Stupid Love, The Holiday, which is kind of a Christmas rom-com, and Love Actually, which is also considered a a Christmas romantic comedy. Uh, But they did actually 
uh, eliminate the Christmas data, you know, the data from around the holidays uh, of favorites. If they had included the Christmas data, Love Actually would be far and away uh, number one in just about every state. But those are the ones uh, on the list, state by state, of the top romantic comedies uh, that were picked number one in at least one state. Ohio's top pick, by the way, 10 Things I Hate About You, which I, you know, I was really surprised that there were no classic, uh, you know, Breakfast at Tiffany's or, you know, any of those uh, old uh, classics that uh, I was just surprised there were no uh, older movies uh, in that list. But if you're looking for a romantic comedy, those are the ones Apparently, that are the most uh, favorite state by state. Any of those, I think you probably can't go wrong. There you go. Some of the most interesting and buzzworthy stories to get your Wednesday morning started. WFIN News. I'm Matt Demchek. Your WTOL 11 weather. Partly to mostly sunny today, a high around 40. Partly cloudy tonight, a low around 30. State Representative John Cross recently announced that millions of dollars have been allocated for the 83rd District in a supplemental appropriations bill passed by the Ohio House. But many of his colleagues in the Ohio Senate say the process needed to be much more collaborative. Cross was on with WFIN's Chris Oaks to discuss. The Senate doesn't run the House and the House doesn't run the Senate. But uh, we have the experience, the maturity and the intellect to sit down and work through this process. Among the funding that Cross touted but is not yet finalized is $1.25 million for construction of the new Finley YMCA Early Childhood Learning Center. Get more on the story on our website. A judge has ruled that the Parental Notification by Social Media Operators Act in Ohio will officially be put on hold. Last month, a group called NetChoice, who represents Facebook, X, and YouTube, sued the state, saying the law violated free speech rights protected by the First Amendment. You may remember the law would have required kids to get permission from their parents to sign up for any social media or gaming apps. It would only apply to those brand new accounts, and the companies would be responsible for creating a method of consent for parents. Several states have passed similar laws, which were all addressed in that same lawsuit. I'm Andrew Kinsey. One Energy, in collaboration with Marathon Petroleum, has announced the company's joint application for an Ohio Innovation Hubs grant. If successful in securing the grant, the companies intend to progress efforts to establish the Black Swamp Combinator, a pioneering innovation hub for energy technology startups in Finley. Get more on this venture in the story on our website. The Ohio State women's basketball team is having a great season and is ranked number two in the country. They've now won 11 games in a row. They return to action on Wednesday. With that number two ranking, Coach McGuff says, Being at Ohio State, we always got a big target on our back, but then when you get ranked second in the country, it's, it, it even gets bigger. So, you know, our kids know this, and we've got to show some maturity here and, and handle our success that we've had lately. I'm Dom Tiberi. Remember, you can always get more news online anytime at WFIN.com. So now we get to our cover story this morning. The Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court is getting behind an effort to combat what you could call legal deserts. We've heard this terminology in the past. 
uh, usually as it relates to food deserts, right, where a, a community uh, doesn't have easy access to a full-service grocery store or supermarket or uh, healthcare deserts where there are communities that uh, don't have a uh, practicing uh, general physician. Uh, this would be in legal deserts, uh, kind of the same thing where uh, an underserved community, usually a rural community, does not have an active practicing attorney. And uh, Chief Justice Sharon Kennedy is with us uh, on the line this morning to talk about this program. Um, Madam Chief Justice, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. First of all, we appreciate it. Well, good morning, Chris, and thank you for the opportunity to be with you and your listeners today. What we're talking about here is the Rural Practice Incentive Program through the Department of Higher Education. Explain what this program is all about. So if you step back in time, one of those segues that you talked about earlier is exactly what this program is modeled after. In the early 1990s, the State Office of Rural Health really took on an initiative to improve the rural health care delivery systems in rural parts of Ohio. And one of that was a student loan repayment for those doctors willing to go into rural areas and provide services. So in House Bill 150, which became effective January 2nd of 23, it allows a pool of money, $1.5 million, is set aside. It is a three-year contract where a newly licensed lawyer with less than eight years of practice agrees to serve 520 hours in a rural county as a public defender, a prosecutor, or a court-appointed attorney. And in exchange, they get $10,000 for their loan repayment. What we're looking at when you talk about a legal desert, what does that really mean? It means if the ratio of lawyer to citizen is more than 700 citizens per one lawyer, it's considered a legal desert. Right now, Ohio only has six counties where that ratio is above. So if you're in Cuyahoga, Franklin, Hamilton, Lucas, Montgomery, or Summit counties, you have more than enough attorneys. But that leaves, you know, 82 other counties without sufficient Lawyers, I, and you you look at those counties, and those are the ones that are the most populated cities. So even Hancock County uh, would qualify under this uh, definition. Hancock County does uh, fit the definition, and right now there are sixty two lawyers for the resident population of over seventy three thousand, which means you have one lawyer for every one thousand one hundred and eighty. Populous, but I can take you across the state to Vinton County. There are only two lawyers in Vinton County serving a population of over 12,000. Wow. That means there's one lawyer for every 6,000 plus citizens. Mm. As a result of that, those legal deserts are concerning. The Access to Justice Foundation, which is the entity that really began the conversation with the General Assembly and Representatives Hillier and Leland, who actually carried the bill is they're the ones that deserve the credit for spotlighting Ohio's initiative for us. 
the, the program will go past March 15th as we begin what I say inspiring young leaders to see the practice of law as being service-oriented to helping communities and then asking them to return home in the future. So explain why this is so critical. I, I mean, again, when we talk about food deserts or healthcare deserts, it's it's easy to see why this would be such a critical issue. Um, it might not necessarily be as obvious at first glance why a program uh, like this would be needed. What types of legal services uh, would uh would be needed or, you know, lay out kind of some scenarios why this is so important. So the three positions that they're willing to fund in the loan repayment are all about the criminal justice system. If you are charged with a crime as an adult or you are charged with a delinquent complaint as a juvenile, you are entitled to representation. That is the United States Supreme Court Gideon versus Wainwright. You are entitled to representation as the, as the state brings those charges. Right. We don't have enough lawyers who are willing to serve in those areas to represent those individuals as they're standing trial for accused of a crime, their liberty interest at stake, but also on the other side of the coin. They're also willing to pay young lawyers who are willing to go into rural areas to serve as a prosecutor. So if you go to Ashland County, having spoken to the prosecutor up there, they struggle to retain assistant prosecutors hmm. because it's Ashland County and young lawyers don't want to move to Ashland County. Yeah. You know, they're they're focused on those big metropolitan areas. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, as we were saying, the data shows clearly there is an overabundance of attorneys in those areas. So uh, it uh, really is kind of a, a double-edged sword. Now, this, uh, this program is up and running now, or how is this, how does this work? How is it organized? So the law became effective January 2nd of 2023. Then the Ohio Department of Higher Education wrote the rules. They just released it in February, so the program is active. The deadline is March 15th to apply. Again, it's anyone willing to serve as a public defender, prosecutor, or court-appointed attorney to serve the legal needs in a criminal case. Okay. If you have a young lawyer who has less than eight years of service or you have a family member who knows of a young lawyer, that lawyer can go to highered.ohio.gov backslash rural dash practice and apply today. The only stipulation is the years of service and they cannot be part of another government funded loan repayment program so obviously and kind of the the flip side of all of this obviously the benefit for young new attorneys uh is going to be the immediate thing that's going to jump out of them is uh assistance with loan repayment because uh, as we all know it's not cheap to get a law degree but also this can provide uh some valuable uh experience for a, a young up-and-coming attorney? I think the experience of being able to handle cases, be in a courtroom on a daily basis is invaluable. And for those listeners who might fit that less than eight years of service and be a little concerned about skill sets, 
the Ohio Supreme Court offers a mentoring program for new attorneys. We would partner you with a more experienced attorney in that time, allowing you to develop that mentoring relationship. And I would say to any lawyer, go to any county, speak to or call any experienced lawyer. They're going to welcome you in to have a cup of coffee, have a conversation, and help you out along in the practice of law. And, We're a community. Yeah. And, and again, beyond just the scope of this program, I mean, hearing you outline uh, the need that is out there, uh, I think that's a message that is, uh, you know, should be uh, heeded or uh, is an attention getter for uh, any attorney, whether or not we're talking about the uh, rural practice incentive program or not, that there are certainly uh, areas, uh, these legal deserts where uh, expertise in in the law is desperately needed. I could not agree more and that this is what I call the creation of the pipeline. So right now, we hope this program continues into the future. But what we're doing, what I say in the pipeline phase is going out to speak to young people who are obvious leaders in rural communities to get them to see that Becoming a, a lawyer is a great way to serve their community. So many young people want a career that serves the needs of people. There could not be a greater yeah. calling than serving as a lawyer to serve the needs of people in your community. Yeah. Again, uh, Chief Justice of the Ohio Supreme Court, Sharon Kennedy, with us this morning talking about the Rural Practice Incentive Program. You mentioned the website uh, through the Department of Higher Education uh, where folks can learn more. Let's mention that again real quickly. It's highered.ohio.gov backslash rural dash practice. Apply today. Thank you so much, Chris, for your time and thank you to your listeners. Well, in honor of Valentine's Day, Bankrate is out with new data on how today's couples manage finances. Everything from sharing bank accounts and financial assets to dealing with an imbalance of earning power to committing financial infidelity. And joining us to dig into some of their findings is senior industry analyst Ted Rossman. Ted, all of these things are potential points of major conflict in a relationship. It can sometimes feel like navigating shark-infested waters in a rowboat. That's right. Yeah, it is alarming that more than four in 10 people who are married or otherwise living with a romantic partner have kept or are keeping a financial secret from that person. Yeah. Whether that's secret spending or secret debt or a secret bank account or secret credit card. I actually think a good fix for all this is the yours, mine and ours approach. So it's not a secret. You're being honest about the fact that you and your spouse are going to combine a lot of money, but also have some that's yours and yours alone. I actually think that can be a healthy way to foster independence. You can spend no questions asked on certain hobbies or nights out with friends. The key is you have to agree on how much money is going into that separate account. What I thought was kind of interesting is in looking at some of this data, the way couples today appear to have a number of different ways that they approach this. I mean, when I got married, and it's been 30 plus years ago now, the first thing you did was combine everything into a joint checking account. It was just kind of expected. It was what you did. But that has 
changed uh, by way of the data here. It is interesting how it's changed. Yeah, we found a, a big split. 39% of people who are married or living with a romantic partner completely combine their finances. 38% have a mix of joint and separate accounts, and 24% keep their finances completely separate. Another way to look at this is by generation. We found that boomers are the most likely generation to completely combine their finances with their spouse or partner. We found that for Gen Xers and millennials, what's most common is the mix, the yours, mine, and ours kind of mm -hmm. hybrid approach. And then Gen Zers are the most likely to keep their money completely separate. And how much of that has to do with the fact that people are coupling up later in life? I mean, again, when my wife and I got married, we really didn't have any assets to fight about uh, because we were very young. Nowadays, people are waiting longer and probably do bring more financial assets into a relationship. Yeah, I think that is very relevant here that a lot of people are getting married later. They're more likely to have their own income. I think sometimes it's hard to mesh your money personality with someone else's, especially if you've gotten more entrenched in your own habits of making your own money and living on your own. I think it's one of the reasons why Gen Zers and millennials are keeping more financial secrets than older adults. And I do think a good fix here is communication. I think we need to get on the same page, you know, figure out what works for you. I think the yours, mine, and ours approach does have a lot of advantages where you're working together, but you also have some independence. Yeah. The key to any of this, though, is bringing it out of the shadows. We don't want the secrets. I think that whatever you decide, you need to have these conversations. We've talked a lot about joint versus separate accounts. Another take on this, too, is at what point do you need to talk to your spouse about a purchase? Is it anything over $100? Is it anything over $500? Maybe it's another amount. Um, but that, that's another thing that I think is important, that you're not surprising the other person with a big purchase. And that's where you talk about financial infidelity. And uh, there are uh, there are several ways that, that kind of can manifest itself. Most likely, it is in that you know, who's spending what and, and how much should we have a conversation before we go out and spend how much? That's, that, yes. that's tough stuff. It is, but I think it gets easier the more you talk about it. So you're right. The top example of financial infidelity is secret spending. I would suggest establishing a money date with your partner. Maybe once a month you talk about upcoming bills, but also goals. You know, what do you want to achieve with money? Do you want to buy a house in the next few years? Do you want to get out of debt or help your kids pay for college or, or re retire early? Whatever it is, I think when you have identified these goals, now you're working together. So it's not as much of the budget as a denial tool of you can't buy this, you can't buy that, yeah. but rather okay, we're going to sacrifice now, but we're going to get this other thing that we really want in a couple of years. I think that's a healthier way to frame it. I know it's hard to talk about money, but I think we need to get over some of those initial hurdles and, and just start working together. And, and I also uh, think that uh, this is something that, like you say, it gets easier uh, over time. And I, I, I don't want to also give the impression that couples have to agree on everything or the relationship is doomed over these financial issues. Uh, a little healthy debate and disagreement and compromises probably necessary. It can be. And I think that brings us back to that yours, mine, and ours approach, because 
a lot of people resent feeling like the other person's looking over their shoulder. That's one of the biggest explanations for why people keep secrets. Is yeah. They want more privacy. They want more independence. I think this yours, mine, and ours agreement can satisfy both, hopefully. So like if you and your spouse each get $100 a paycheck that's yours and yours alone, and then you mix the rest, well, then you have a little bit of fun money and you don't feel as guilty. And maybe the other person doesn't feel as judgy about like what you spent that on, whether that was hobbies or shoes or nights out or, or whatever it is. Uh, are there some things that probably shouldn't fall into that category of yours, mine, and ours in, in terms of, I'm thinking like, uh, if one partner is uh, running up debt that is not uh, kind of running up a balance on a credit card and is not accountable to the other person in the relationship, that can cause uh, problems. Those secrets are harmful. Yeah, I think they take on a life of their own, too, where maybe it starts small and it grows Let's face it, it may come out at some point. It probably will. Maybe it's on a joint application for credit, Mm -hmm. like a mortgage or a car loan, or maybe it's that a suspicious statement arrives in the mail. Or I I just think it's important to be transparent, even if there are some things in your money past that you're not particularly proud of, whether it's debt or spending or what have you. I think it's important to come clean as soon as possible and, and start working together because most people are pretty forgiving. But I think the longer the secret goes on, the more second guessing there can be about, well, huh, what else am I missing? Yeah. And, and by the way, all of this applies regardless of what kind of income we're talking about. Do you see differences when you break it down by income level? Uh, again, we were talking about, you know, differences in terms of generational differences, but is there, are, are there things that wealthy couples typically do differently than middle class or lower income couples do? Because this is an issue across all incomes. It is. We find that financial infidelity is most harmful in the lower income bracket. I think that's just because there's less money to go around. Right. So any, anything that's missing or squirreled away or spent, you know, that, that just makes a bigger difference. Um, in terms of this whole combining or separate finances thing, yours, mine, and ours is the most common approach for all income brackets yeah. except for the one under $50,000 a year. Hmm. It, it's actually most common um, there to have joint accounts. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's very interesting how this all relates, but I think you do need to figure out what works best for you. Um, but consider this hybrid approach. I, I really think for an increasing number of couples, this is the best approach. So it's not one extreme or the other about totally separate or totally together, but mm-hmm. it's mostly together with a little bit of separation. I think that works for a lot of people. And the key is uh, finding that uh, that sweet spot, which is going to be a little bit different uh, for every couple. Again, uh, Bankrate Senior Industry Analyst Ted Rossman with us this morning. We mentioned uh, all of this data uh, on how couples manage their finances. That's all up on your website. If folks want to dig into the numbers and maybe get a little bit of uh, get get a little bit more advice on this, right? It is, yeah. So, in the spirit of Valentine's Day and communication, I, I just think it's so important to have these money talks and and really get moving in the right direction. Because let's face it, it's hard enough to manage your finances when you're on the same page, it's almost impossible if you're pulling in different directions. Amen to that. It's really fascinating reading. Ted Rossman, thanks very much for uh, taking the time. We appreciate it.
No problem. Thank you. This is Good Mornings with Chris Oaks on 1330 WFIN, WFIN.com and 95.5 FM. We interrupt this program to bring you a broken news alert. (laughs) So we have these uh, stories of uh, mistaken identity in the broken news from time to time. And here is another one. This is a little uh, would be a little unnerving, I think. While walking in the Sampson State Park in New York, Tyler Davis stumbled upon what seemed to be, at first glance, a washed-up buoy. But uh, upon closer inspection, he discovered it was clearly a military device that resembled a torpedo with a propeller and what he described as unsettling blinking lights. Can you imagine walking along the beach and stumbling upon something that appears to be a torpedo with a propeller and unsettling blinking lights? That's the most disturbing part, the unsettling blinking lights. Uh, On the device, Mr. Davis found markings, lettering, and a phone number, of all things. So he called the phone number, whereupon he learned that it was, thankfully, not a torpedo, but rather an MK-39 training device from the nearby Seneca Lake Sonar Test Facility. According to a report, the Navy thanked him for helping locate their lost device, which is used for submarine detection training. Now, why they're... (laughs) I don't know, are there submarines? You know, Russian submarines? uh, What would that be in, in New York? Where would that be? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. There might be missing uh, submarines. Despite missing out on a unique souvenir, Mr. Davis is happy. Uh, he says he is content with the intriguing story that he gained from the experience and happy that he could uh, return the uh, device to the military. So <laughs> that that probably is your I mean, it would be unsettling if you see blinking lights on something that looks like a torpedo. But I would think that. Uh, you would be reassured when you see that there's a phone number on it to call. Because <laughs> my guess is that real military torpedoes probably don't have phone numbers uh, printed on them. You know, it's... <laughs> if you have a complaint about this torpedo, please call <laughs> customer service. Said, you know, I just uh, I don't think that they have phone numbers. <laughs> if lost, please call... Elsewhere in the the broken news, uh, this out of Quebec, Canada, where a teacher by the name of Mario Perron has been accused of selling his students' artwork online (laughs) for profit. (laughs) Mr. Perron allegedly sold uh, student uh, artwork. Um, He put them on T-shirts, coffee mugs, and iPhone cases. He used the artwork... (laughs) For designs on t-shirts, coffee mugs, and iPhone cases. Some of the items featuring the students' artwork were priced at over $100. (laughs) One of the parents of the kids whose artwork was featured on these uh, items, one of the parents said, I'm extremely disgusted with this. Is this teacher asking for certain types of projects to be done so that he's able to sell them? 
they've actually hired an intellectual property lawyer who has suggested that the teacher would need permission to copy or sell their work. And uh, I, and I would think, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a no-brainer. If you use someone else's work to profit off of, you got to give them a cut or get their permission before you do that. <laughs> File that under the category of sounded like a good idea at the time, but going to be in all kinds of trouble i don't know if he's still on the job if he's been suspended i have no idea that part of the story but definitely some questions to answer there uh this from merry old england where one guy uh, was a little too merry for his own good reports of drunk drivers certainly nothing new to police but officers in north yorkshire were shocked when the call came from the drunk driver himself Uh, They received a call, according to a report in The Guardian, they received a call on Monday from a man who claimed he was drunk driving and I don't know what I'm doing. That's what he said. (laughs) I'm inebriated and I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, The man whose name was not given but reported to be in his 50s reportedly explained that he had been drinking heavily over the weekend and uh, he really needed some help. Police located his vehicle within 15 minutes And the man was placed under arrest after a breathalyzer test found he was more than three times over the legal limit. So, yeah, he good call there. (laughs) Turned himself in. I suppose some you get some points for that. (laughs) And a couple of uh, Valentine's Day related items in the broken news here this morning. While most people will shower their loved ones with Flowers and chocolates on Valentine's Day. One company is giving folks a totally different option. Glitter. (laughs) This is a company called, are you ready for this? Ship Your Enemies Glitter. That's the name of the company. Ship Your Enemies Glitter. And it's come out with a new line of Valentine's Day inspired glitter filled products that they hope will bring some joy and laughter to your loved ones for the romantic holiday. Although uh, you could also... Use them as great gifts to send to your ex, um, who maybe just dumped you. Valentine's Day items include a heart bomb card, which is a heart-shaped glitter-filled card that allows senders to express their feelings with a touch of humor and flair. There's uh, also the annoying screw box, which is nothing like it sounds. It is a spring-loaded glitter bomb that is held together by 64 screws that the recipients must unscrew in order to open. Once they, <laughs> 64 screws, as if that's not annoying enough, once they remove all of the screws, boom, they get covered in glitter uh, by this uh, glitter bomb. Uh, the company says it ensures the element of surprise is not only glittery, but also shrouded in laughter and difficulty. The company is also offering a variety of exclusive promotions and discounts for the holiday in the hopes that folks will spread the love and the glitter this Valentine's Day should point out that none of the gifts come with a vacuum. (laughs) Bomb your loved ones with glitter for Valentine's Day. And how about about this? Uh, New research worthy of the broken news. Danish historians now say that evidence of the first kiss 
can be found on a clay tablet unearthed in the Middle East, upending decades of academic theory about which culture kissed first. And see, until recently, scholars believed that those in South Asia were the first to engage in lusty lip-locking, with the practice spreading around the globe somewhere around the year 300 B.C., not long before the famed Kama Sutra was first published in India. But in a recent article for Science Magazine, Dr. Trolls Pank Arbol and Dr. Sophie Lund Rasmussen from Denmark assert that their evidence that they have found indicates that humans were twisting their tongues together much earlier than 300 B.C. Their evidence shows lip kissing was documented in ancient Mesopotamian uh, in ancient Mesopotamia, Mesopotamia, excuse me, and which is modern day Iraq, by the way, Mesopotamia as modern day Iraq and um, and Egypt uh, also uh, showed evidence dating all the way back to at least 2500 B.C. So two centuries uh, to millennia before what is commonly believed to be the first evidence of kissing. So it goes all the way to 2500 B.C. I don't know. How do you feel about learning that the act of kissing is something that we get from Iraq, of all places? Think about that. There you go. Something to chew on. Uh, Your broken news report, an update on the odd and unusual side of the headlines this morning. We now return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Did you know more than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio for their news, traffic, weather, sports, and a community connection? AM radio is the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping Americans safe in dangerous times. This is News Director Matt Demchek. AM 1330 WFIN is here to serve you, and we take seriously our commitment to our listeners. We would love to hear what you value most about AM radio. Visit wearebroadcasters.com and tell us how you depend on AM. Your daily download, the numbers behind the news and the statistics that shape our lives. What would be the perfect Valentine's Day date? Uh, If you want to have the perfect Valentine's Day date, you can take the advice of 2,000 millennials and Gen Zers from a new survey, 2,000 single but dating young adults. And they asked, what is the anatomy of the perfect Valentine's Day date? Um, Well, first of all, it should begin with flowers or a gift. Uh, According to 40%, flowers or a gift, just for starters. That's not it. That's that's just starters. 33% say they would want to be picked up from their home by their date, assuming you're not cohabitating. Uh, The date should then continue... With dinner, 59% say dinner would be the next, uh, the next thing. 33% would prefer going to a movie. And the night should end with some form of togetherness. 48% want some alone time with their date. 43% say a goodnight kiss is appropriate. Oh, and by the way, 58% of dating Americans say dessert 
after dinner is the number one highlight of the date. <laughs> Dessert. Um, according to uh, this survey, 63%, whatever you do, uh, go out. That seems to be the preferred uh, anatomy of the perfect Valentine's Day date, going out. 63% uh, prefer or plan to go out for Valentine's Day and do something. Just 20% uh, will be staying at home, and the rest are not celebrating at all. So there you go, according to young dating adults, Gen Zers and Millennials, uh, that is the anatomy of a perfect Valentine's Day date. Valentine's Day, of course, and, you know, there's the usual collection of standard Valentine's Day gift cards and flowers and chocolates and jewelry is always good, but uh, as a guy, like most guys, I always struggle with trying to find a gift that is truly unique, something special, something that is, you know, a little out of the ordinary. And uh, I thought this was kind of interesting. Um, a Good Housekeeping had a, uh, a piece on, you know, great Valentine's Day gifts. They uh, had a, uh, and, and I'm not sure who sells this, where you get this, but I thought it was uh, really cool. Uh, artificial roses uh, in a glass dome that's kind of uh, lit and uh, it's just a, a beautiful thing. I guess you can get it on Amazon. One of the other things uh, that you can find on Amazon, I thought this was uh, rather clever. It's a poster. It's a scratch-off poster with 100 creative date ideas. Every uh, Everyone you scratch off gives you a, a different date idea. And uh, so it's like giving a hundred dates on this uh, on this poster. You never know what might pop up. And I thought that was kind of kind of creative. But if you really want the most ultimate, you know, the ultimate unforgettably romantic gift for your special someone, how about taking her on a cruise? I mean, a romantic couple's getaway um, of any kind is is you know kind of like the holy grail of valentine's day gift but a cruise that's taken it to a whole different level doesn't get much more romantic than that right uh we are joined this morning by travel expert colleen mcdaniel she is editor-in-chief of cruise critic colleen what is it about a cruise that makes it so romantic why do we immediately associate those two things sailing and romance well for starters you get to spend more time together i mean we all live very busy lives, and cruising offers a romantic escape that really lets you maximize your quality time together, whether that is enjoying cultural sites in Europe or relaxing on a beach in Hawaii. Also, cruising is unmatched in terms of variety and value. It lets you pick your stateroom type, your activities, your dining, your entertainment, and more. And when you compare the cost of cruising with a similar land-based vacation, cruising is simply more inclusive. It's the best value for your vacation dollar. So you also point out that uh, this would be something that would be uh, a really cool getaway for like a Galentine's Day, a, you know, a, a girl's trip, girl's getaway. I love this. This is, this is my favorite concept because... 
there is no better way to connect or reconnect with the women in your life than embarking on a new cruise journey together. Cruising provides a variety of experiences that really cater to women anywhere, whether it's discovering a new city, enjoying beach time, or even signing up for an adventurous activity. Plus, you get to unpack once, and you wake up <laughs> every day in a new destination. Yeah, there you go. But let's be honest, it can actually, yeah, it's, it's terrific. And, you know, when it comes to traveling with gals, it can actually be really hard for women to get away given their daily responsibilities. Mm-hmm. So cruising offers this flexibility and ease of travel that makes it the best value for your vacation time, too. So whether we're talking about the romantic getaway or just a a gal's time away, a a, a ladies trip, uh, now is really the time. The main reason we talk about it now, people are starting to think about uh, spring and summer uh, vacations. What should people be thinking about uh, before booking a cruise vacation, whatever that looks like? You're absolutely right, Chris. Now is the perfect time to be looking at your summer 2024 vacation. You need to book ahead. And right now, for a limited time, Norwegian Cruise Line is actually offering 50% off all of its cruises, plus it's free at Sea Deal, which includes unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, free shore excursion credits, and so much more. We also do tell people to research your accommodations. So if you're that couple that's looking to splurge a little bit on a romantic there's the Haven, which is Norwegian Cruise Line's private ship-within-a-ship complex. And it comes with a whole host of amenities, including private pool, private restaurant, private bar, and even 24-7 butler service. Wow. Now, for the girls' trip, yeah, we recommend considering connecting rooms so you're never too far apart. Or um, one of the things I love is the studio cabin. And these are these are staterooms that are designed and priced for the solo traveler. Uh, in fact, NCL actually offers these solo cabins on all 19 ships in its fleet. Now, what are, again, since we're coming up on the time of year when, when people are thinking about this, booking their trips, what are some of the uh, most popular destinations that people are looking to cruise to this year? I would imagine, you know, every every season is a little bit different. So what's what's really hot right now? Certainly every season is a little bit different, but right now Europe and Hawaii are in high demand. And these are both great destinations for girls getaways, but also excellent for couples too. Um, Europe is the perfect destination to visit with gal pals. Uh, you know, look for these immersive itineraries. Norwegian Cruise Line, for example, offers on average 10 and a half hours in each of the ports it visits in Europe. So you really can have that time to bond with your friends and indulge in a culturally diverse destination. Um, Hawaii, of course, is incredible. And Norwegian Cruise Line is the only cruise line that offers seven-day inner island itineraries leaving from Honolulu. Now, these itineraries are also great because you get almost 100 hours in port and you get overnights in Maui and Kauai. Now, there are so many uh, different possibilities here, so many options, so many destinations, and so on. How do you decide? I mean, what what should people think about when deciding what would be the perfect vacation uh, for them? 
Yeah. So a couple of things. One, um, you can cruise to virtually any destination in the world. So really do identify where you want to visit. Um, two, do your research. Visit a site like cruisecritic.com where you can learn about ships and destinations and pick up a lot of tips and tricks from fellow cruise travelers just like you. Especially for those who may be cruise newbies, uh, that I would imagine would be very helpful as well. So where do we get uh, more information here, Colleen? Yeah, so for more information on the destinations, the itineraries, and the ships that I mentioned, visit ncl.com. And of course, for to connect with fellow cruisers and read cruise reviews, visit cruisecritic.com. She is travel expert uh, Colleen McDaniel, editor-in-chief of Cruise Critic. Colleen, thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. And that will finish up our podcast for today. I want to thank all of our guests for joining us on the program this morning. Remember, you can get more information about all of the topics that we talk about each and every day on the program at our webpage and that, of course, goodmornings.net. Coming up tomorrow on the program, something really interesting here. One young woman's story about being fired just a week into her job because she didn't know what she was supposed to be doing or how to do it has gone viral, sparking a discussion about how many companies today seem to have forgotten about the important process of training new employees. We'll dig into it. So until tomorrow morning, that is Good Mornings for this morning. Now that you've had a good morning, go on out and make it a good day. We'll catch you back here tomorrow.